Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posted December 8, 2017, we spotlight a recent talking policy feature on the World Policy blog about the state of media and literature in ever more tense Turkey, specifically the surprising popularity of a 75-year-old Turkish novel titled Madonna in a Fur Coat. We'll also preview top stories in the new WPJ winter issue, cover line, Native Voices. But first, some timely insights from global affairs analyst and author Michael Moran, head of Transformative.io, risk and geostrategy consultants, and a visiting fellow at the Carnegie Corporation of New York. President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital city ends a long debate over this topic. And it tells us a number of things about President Trump. First, It confirms the priority he places on satisfying domestic constituencies, in this case, American Jewish voters and Christian evangelists who have longed for the U.S. Embassy to be moved from Tel Aviv, where it has stood since President Harry Truman midwifed Israel into existence in 1948. It also indicates a continuing disdain for the professional diplomats of the State Department, whose practiced level-headed approach to many issues make them unpopular with those who prefer tough talk and shoot from the hip policymaking. Nixon hated state so much he ran his whole foreign policy through the National Security Council of Henry Kissinger. State in his day opposed his secret war in Cambodia and Laos, his overthrow of Chile's elected president Salvador Allende, and so Nixon cut them out of the policy loop. Look how well that turned out. George W. Bush, too, saw state as an obstacle. He sandbagged his own Secretary of State, Colin Powell, into delivering false intelligence assessments of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction at the United Nations. In fact, as Powell knew, the State Department's own Intelligence Bureau was one of the few sounding the alarm over the slanted, often fabricated WMD intel. But Powell was a good soldier, and his intelligence people were told to be quiet. The resulting disaster still haunts us. It would be fair to say that the State Department today is deeply unhappy with the prospect of moving its ambassador to Jerusalem, a city that is central to the dispute between the Israelis, the Palestinians, and the wider Arab world. And here Trump betrays another deep misunderstanding. There was a time, perhaps immediately after World War II, for instance, when an American president could dictate such things, as Truman did. That time is over prematurely, for that matter, thanks to some of the very errors I just listed. The State Department, even in its weakened condition under Trump punching bag Rex Tillerson, would like to keep its embassy where it is. But once again, a president who thinks he knows best will prevail. And that is another tragedy. For World Policy On Air, I'm Michael Moran. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. In Turkey, uh, the new generation of writers all write about that kind of issues. Uh, Political problem, torture, Kurdish issue, homosexuality, everything. Uh, All of them are equally dangerous at the moment, so I'm not alone. Mm. We We are being targeted, you know. We are being banished from universities. Turkish author Bern Sonmez at European Literature Night in London last year talked about the passion and pressures of a writer's life back home under the increasingly dictatorial Erdogan regime, with many journalists and writers either fleeing the country or facing arrest. 
but the dissident author of a current bestseller titled Madonna in a Fur Coat is in no danger, despite some of his novel's subversive social themes. The book was first published in 1943, and author Sabahattin Ali was killed five years later trying to flee across the border to Bulgaria. For a recent Talking Policy post on the World Policy blog, Maureen Freely, who translated Ali's work into English, discussed the state of Turkey's literary and media culture and why Ali's book resonates so strongly with readers today. Freely is also president of English Pen, Defending Writers and Free Expression, and we spoke the other day for this podcast. Maureen Freely, welcome to World Policy on Air. Lovely to be with you. Talk about the plot of Madonna in a Fur Coat and some of the key elements of this 75-year-old fiction that have made it so popular in a very different Turkey over the past three or four years. The importance of art, defying convention, even non-traditional gender roles. Well, it's set in the um, faraway 1920s, the interwar period, and uh, the story, nonetheless, is um, an echo of what uh, many uh, young Turks have experienced, which is a first visit to Europe. In this case, a young man who has been sent by his father to study the manufacture of soap in Berlin, and who secretly spends all his time reading literature and going to um, art galleries. And this is a big secret from uh, his family that has no time for this sort of thing. Um, Many, many uh, young people all over the world, not just Turkey, uh, will know what that's like these days. And these utilitarian uh, must uh, study something that will keep you in the middle class times that we're in. Uh, He goes to uh, one gallery, there's a kind of a group uh, exhibition, and he happens on to a self-portrait, uh, which is called Madonna in a Fur Coat, and he falls in love with the portrait, and he goes back every day to look at it. Uh, uh, the woman in the picture seems to understand him. He finally um, makes uh, the acquaintance of the artist, and then they have a a very unusual friendship that um, doesn't, uh, it's, it's very, very intense, very passionate, uh, but it uh, doesn't obey any of the gender conventions of the time, or indeed of Turkey today, uh, which has, after a renaissance of uh, lasting uh, 20, 25 years, has become increasingly patriarchal, increasingly authoritarian, increasingly intolerant of um, anyone um, who isn't going to act uh, like Erdogan's idea of a man or Erdogan's idea of a woman. Talk more about the factors shaping the lives and tastes of young readers in Erdogan's Turkey. Uh, you talk about repression, Karenza, uh, with, with that growing fear at home, alongside what they know of the outside world from foreign visitors and especially now the Internet. Well, I think that, uh, you know, in the Turkey of my childhood, this is, uh, we're talking about the, the 60s here, uh, Turkey really was a pretty closed society. It was very, very difficult um, to go abroad, to find, to get the permission, let alone the money, uh, to go abroad. Um, there were just the first uh, guest workers uh, going uh, from the poorest parts of the city 
uh, and the country in general, going to Germany and other uh, parts of Northern uh, Europe. Um, but uh, that was it. So the, uh, the state, the Turkish state, really, really did have a, a stranglehold over uh, the, the Turkish people and what they got to see and what they got to understand. Uh, there was um, um, one, uh, there wasn't even television in those days, there was one radio station that was controlled by the state and it was a substitution economy, so we didn't get very much from the outside world. Well, all of this changed, first of all, with um, with what we'll now call globalization. And, of course, hand-in-hand uh, uh, hand with globalization comes the Internet, so that uh, uh, young people in Turkey by the 1990s were beginning to live those double lives uh, that we see in so many other parts. In other words, I, I remember one of my students... Um, uh, was a very you know, pious headscarf wearing person, um, and but she wore high top sneakers with her, you know, Islamic outfit, and <laughs> uh, her best, uh, uh, her she had a very very good internet friend uh, in Greece. Um, that the sort of thing that was happening in Turkey then, but of course was happening in so many other parts of uh, Asia, Africa, uh, Latin America. Um, not to mention um, uh, um, Europe and North America as well. So, uh, so you you have that opening up. Uh, at the same time, there is that Renaissance I was mentioning. Um, after the brutal coup of 1980, uh, there were, we we had a, a bad decade, and then uh, things got easier. And at that point, uh, a lot of um, my contemporaries who had uh, many of whom had suffered uh, two stints in political prisons, were out and continuing in their careers <clears throat> and determined uh, uh, to create um, uh, a, a culture in which uh, Turkish readers and Turkish uh, 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 people, uh, Turks involved in uh, musical culture and film culture could connect with their own uh, past, you know, the, um, and reconnect with authors such as Sabatin Ali, who had been uh, suppressed and forgotten. So you had this kind of romance of republication and embracing again the authors who had been erased, uh, the, the music that had been erased, the films that had been erased, and so on. And all of this leads uh, eventually to uh, the, the 2013 Gezi protests, in which mostly young people stand up and say to Erdogan, we want to have a choice to shape our own lives. Um, um, we want to be who we are. Uh, uh, if we're um, LGBT, we want to be able to stand up and say so proudly. Uh, if, uh, if we um, want to go into the arts, we want to stand up and say so proudly. If we want to know our own history, if we want to acknowledge that we're not just Turkish, but partly Greek, partly, <laughs> partly Armenian, uh, partly Jewish um, or entirely uh, of those minorities, um, we want to be able to say so and embrace our history. Um, so um, that's what, but the, the Gezi protests went on for an extraordinary long time when you think about you know, what protests are and what the riot police that were surrounding them. But of course, you know, after about six weeks, they did come to an end. Um, and um, the, uh, the crackdown on, on the part of Erdogan and his people um, becomes uh, 
continuous from then on and, and, and worse and worse. So is there a certain safety in reading about these uh, unconventional ideas in a setting so far before the Erdogan era that he and his followers can't take offense? I think so. I think so. Um, it's, um, I, I, there's always been uh, power in, in metaphor and allegory and, and resonance. I think that's what, uh, uh, you know, that's what literature is for. It's for, just think about uh, how Shakespeare uh, was resonant in Eastern Europe during the Cold War, um, uh, how Shakespeare is resonant right now in the productions um, that, that, that we're seeing in uh, Syrian refugee camps. It's a wonderful way of, of freeing yourself from the, the constraints in which you live and also the divided loyalties um, that, that make it very hard to articulate. Um, thinking again of my, uh, my stu- student with a headscarf who's very, very pious, but of course also wants to belong it does belong to uh, world culture and um, uh, and Western uh, uh, the world of Western ideas. Uh, it's far easy, far easier for somebody like her um, to pick up a book uh, that's about um, a romance that took place 75 years ago, in which a lot of these tensions are playing themselves out, than for her to stand up to her uh, uh, you know Westernized classmates who hate her. And, and say, well, actually, I agree with uh, you on some points. It, it's just so polarized at the moment um, that um, I can understand why um, young people will take refuge in a book um, that plays these things, uh, these questions out in, uh, in safety, if you like. Actually, given the fact that it's set in the 20s, it's 100 years or almost 100 years uh, earlier. By contrast yeah. to its current... By contrast to its current popularity, the book was not universally acclaimed at first, even by uh, friends of the author who liked his other works. Say more about that. Sabatin Ali was sort of recognized and um, applauded by you know, Nazim Hikmet, who was the, you know, the greatest uh, poet of the, of the 20th century, really, uh, and much, much uh, revered during his, uh, uh, during his uh, Lifetime, much of which he did spend in prison, and so he had a very, you know, high reputation from uh, the first, uh, his very, very first publications in literary journals. Uh, but he never made money from writing. He never, uh, and he didn't have any family money because his family had lost everything in World War One. And of course, because he was a socialist, or just because he uh, was uh, critical of Ataturk, it's not even because he was a socialist. Uh, he was in and out of prison, and it's very hard to work as a teacher if you are out of favor with the state because because the, the you know the teaching profession is entirely state controlled. So uh, uh, it was felt when he published this book, which he wrote during a, a second uh, uh, stint in, uh, of military service, that he was simply trying to support his family and it was a desperate thing to do to write an unconventional love story in which men did not act like men. Uh, the, the literary scene was not entirely male at the time, but it was pretty, pretty, you know, uh, it was pretty much run by men who, you know, whatever they did privately had a very, very kind of vocal commitment to um, very male maleness. So they just didn't know uh, what to make of that. In general, 
the problem that people had with his novels is that he, uh, in their eyes, was uh, combining two forms that these uh, very male authors thought should always be kept separate. And one is sort of a social realism, and the other, uh, which is for men to do. And then the other one was romance, which was for women to do. And so he was gender bending in that way that made them very uncomfortable, I think. Um, but uh, also just made them, you know, not see uh, the point of what he was doing. And it makes me admire him all the more. And the woman that he falls in love with, the artist, is, as you say, unconventional. And, and say more about their relationship, which uh, his contemporaries found so hard to accept, at least publicly. Well, she's a very independent woman, and very outspoken, um, and, and, and um, uh, uh, quite harsh in uh, protecting her freedom. She's half Jewish. She spends uh, a large part of their romance saying that she doesn't want there to be a romance and that she doesn't believe in love and so on. And he, uh, Rice, our hero, he, he takes the passive role. He really respects her position as much as he longs for things to be different. And, um, uh, and there, there's, a lot, there's, there's a lot of walking in this novel. They walk through uh, so much of Berlin and its parks that I feel like I've been there myself. <laughs> and uh, at a certain point, um, she, uh, you know, she falls ill and she does need him. And, uh, and he does take care of her in a very manly way, you might say, but also in a very you know, uh, uh, caring female way. So even when they, con- uh, they, they shift roles, uh, he's doing so in a way that it's interesting to read about now. And it's, uh, and, you know, it's, an, uh, it's an eye-opener um, for us to read it now and realize that there were people who were grappling with these things, were shaping their um, their personal lives in ways that we are you know are trying to do now and that that uh, you know that so we see that we have we have some uh, noble ancestors in this endeavor <laughs> given given his dissidence his service both in the army and in prison uh, the fiction that he wrote the journalism uh, the newspaper that he published which was fairly strident how does his personal history factor into the modern day popularity of this book do you think he is a story himself uh, in that uh, he not only wrote independently um, uh, according to his own lights instead of according to the the categories that were imposed on him, uh, but also, as you mentioned, this extraordinary newspaper uh, that he um, uh, published with a number of other uh, very mischievous um, writer friends which is at the kind of the, at the most uh, uh, fascist moment of uh, 20th century Turkish history. Um, uh, what he and his, um, and his friends were doing with Marco Pasha was uh, making hysterically funny, vicious fun of, um, of, uh, the, of the Turkish state and its, uh, its, its um, uh, prime minister. And, and, and president, and um, to the extent that um, you know, the joke, you know, humor is not something that usually lasts very long. It's still really funny what they did, uh, and uh, that, of course, um, in my view, is what uh, what got him into uh, big, big trouble, and uh, why he wasn't able to find work, and uh, and so on. The um, people um, who are going in the authoritarian direction do not like to be laughed at 
Um, and uh, so after he got out of prison, um, uh, 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 because of uh, what had been said in the, in, in the satirical newspaper, that was the point at which he had to um, leave because he was unable to make a living. He was unable to get a job in, in Turkey anymore, very much in the way that um, many um, uh, uh, civil servants and writers and academics uh, find themselves unemployable uh, today and also unable to get a passport. So he did the desperate thing, and uh, it was the truck driver he hired to take him across into Bulgaria it turned out to be uh, uh, in, in, in cahoots with the uh, secret police. Um, he uh, was then uh, murdered. Uh, there was no news about uh, his murder for six months, uh, at which point uh, a newspaper that was very, uh, you know, much um, aligned with state powers published a uh, kind of a still life, if you like, of all of his personal facts, his, his jacket, his glasses, a photograph of his wife, um, a copy of Eugene O'Negan. Um, and these personal effects were never returned to the family, uh, nor was his body. Uh, and um, that was meant to be that. And in, as far as Turkey is concerned, it was uh, that for quite some time. Uh, uh, Sabatin Ali's uh, daughter was advised never to mention to anyone who her father was. Uh, when she was growing up. It, the book um, found a new home in Bulgaria, uh, where it became something that was studied in, in, in secondary schools, and it was well-known, still well-known there, but it became well-known uh, throughout uh, Eastern Europe and also in the, in the, in the Soviet Union. In the, uh, at the very, very end of the 20th century, so I'm saying around 1998, 99, um, during the Renaissance I was mentioning before, uh, uh, a, a pioneering um, uh, publishing house started bringing out uh, the lost works of the 20th century and published all of uh, the works of Sabatina uh, as part of that series. Uh, and uh, it's at that in point... Turkey. That in Turkey, back. published in, in Turkey, Turkey. In Turkey, Yeah. So not, not until um, uh, 1998 does it come back into Turkey and then it sort of uh, it, uh, all of you know, although his 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 complete opus is there uh, available. It's this book that gets picked up by uh, uh, young people and uh, and passed around. Now, and you know the first so we've almost had two generations of readers now. So the first generation of readers are um, uh, they're people who uh, are pretty much born. Uh, in the shadow of the 1980 coup, and at a time when Turkey is opening up and they themselves are going to Europe for the first time to study, you know, that's a, and uh, and to travel and so on and so forth. And the generation now is the the you know the generation after that uh, that is having to um, uh, cope with um, those doors that had opened now closing again. And so um, I think the resonances were. Today's young people are um, uh, more, even more poignant than the resonances of its, you know, first uh, new readers back in Turkey.
It also proves the, it also proves the power, the the survivability of literature and and its continuing importance or its its ability to be important at different times uh, to different yes. people. Yes. Yes, if, it, at, if there's love in it, if there's love in it and there's truth in it, I would say I, I, this book has turned me into a romantic. <laughs> <laughs> Looking at the Turkish literary scene and the increasingly constrained media sphere, do you see any change in the role of literature and novels uh, playing in a space that might have been occupied by more overtly political work in a, in a, more, uh, in, in a less hostile atmosphere? Well, one thing to remember about the Turkish intelligentsia and the Tur- Turkish cultural sphere is um, that it is no longer contained by the borders of Turkey. And, and this is partly the, uh, uh, because of the number of um, people who had to leave in the wake of 19- the 1980 coup. And, uh, and now, of course, we have these new waves of people coming um, coming out now. And also the extraordinary courage of people even today publishers even today in turkey are bringing out books uh, that um are dangerous uh to um to the to the uh, security of their publishers publishing houses and uh, and then put them at risk of being in prison so it's still there's still publishing going on there is uh you know, there are some houses publishing houses that are um uh, being careful or being too careful um, but the extraordinary thing is the amount that's still happening, you know, because if I were a publisher, I don't know if I would find the courage uh, to be publishing some of these things in Turkey at the moment. Of course, literature um, allows us to look at these things uh, indirectly uh, and uh, uh, you know, we, we can find, uh, we can always find ways um, uh, to be free inside the, the stories that, that we invent. That is certainly going on uh, at the moment. Uh, there is, uh, you know, there is a uh, renaissance of cultural expression. Um, what we are doing in uh, in England right now, and particularly in London, uh, and I think we'll probably see the same sort of thing in Berlin, in Paris, uh, in in various American uh, North American cities as well, where there are sort of large. Uh, 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 Turkish populations is we see networks uh, setting up here of uh, Turkish writers so that we and they uh, can carry on doing their work even though they're not at home right now. You talked about the bravery of publishers. What about the personal danger of the actual writers of fiction? Uh, They're in personal danger. I mean, you can just look at the example of Asla Erdogan who was in prison uh, uh, last year, and it was, you know, thanks to uh, international pressure, um, in part at least, that, 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 that she was released. Always remember that it's so dangerous to exercise freedom of expression in Turkey that if you're a novelist, uh, you're probably doing other things as well. Um, for example, in the case of Asla Erdogan, she was uh, part of a collective that was trying to keep open a newspaper that was uh, run by the the democratic Kurdish uh, movement. So um, one of the reasons she's in prison is because of the uh, activities she's involved in as a writer to keep, uh, you know, to, to, to keep the spaces open for, um, uh, uh, for, for proper democratic discussion. Also, and this is um, really important to remember as a translator, I must say this, it is very 
dangerous to be a translator in Turkey. Um, because if you uh, translate something that the state doesn't like, um, you get prosecuted as well. If the publisher gets prosecuted, the author gets prosecuted, and if it's something from abroad, the translator gets prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Canon does go to jail. And uh, if, if there's a, a charge of terrorism, which can be applied to just about anything these days, um, um, it, it can be a very, very long time before you even know what the charges are. What do you hope English-speaking audiences outside Turkey will take away from reading uh, Madonna in a fur coat, uh, certainly in the English versions that you've helped create? Well, when I, I give the book to young people here, the interesting thing is they'll say, well, it's clearly, you know, a, you know an old book written in a, you know, sort of in a, a, a way that, that – um, uh, sets it in the time that it was written, um, but the concerns are so contemporary. And the, the main concern that they talked to me about, you know, um, bear in mind that I, I teach here at a, at a, uh, at a university, um, they talk about uh, the, uh, the secret shame of loving literature <laughs> and loving <laughs> art, and that that is something... That, uh, that they have to either hide or defend um, as they uh, go through university and think about their futures. So um, that's something that I wasn't really expecting, but I find that interesting. And I suppose, I suppose you could also say that um, although we in um, the West can be more open about um, the way we uh, understand our um, sexuality and um, and uh, the way in which we uh, choose to shape and reshape uh, our, our personal lives, it's certainly not easy. And uh, I think that they feel close to those characters who are also trying to find their way and quite encouraged to hear that it's not just them and it's not just now. It's always been difficult um, uh, to uh, find your way. The other thing that they talk about um, is about um, missed opportunities, uh, particularly, um, and this, this is actually true of people who are not, you know, the readers who are not in the arts. You know, this 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 terrible fear that if you make the safe choice, the one your parents want, uh, the the manufacturer of soap, if you like, <laughs> that that, uh, that you're going to somehow uh, be missing and losing the most important things in life and letting down the people you love most. So this is, um, uh, I think, a, a kind of indication to me that um, the younger generation is not, so, not as free as it looks, uh, not as confident as it sometimes seems, very, very much uh, worried about, uh, you know, making a life in this tough economy that we have now and uh, how can they be true to the things they love and believe in. Maureen Freely, thank you. Thank you. Maureen Freely is president of English Pen, defending writers and free expression. She's translated Sabahattin Ali's work into English for a talking policy post on the World Policy blog, discussing the state of Turkey's literary and media culture and why Ali's 1943 novel Madonna in a Fur Coat resonates so strongly with Turkish readers today.
Featured in the new WPJ winter issue, Coverline Native Voices, you'll find an inside account of struggles behind the UN Declaration of Indigenous Rights and articles about a flawed treaty in New Zealand, rediscovered native roots in Norway, and the viral battle being waged by Bedouin Arabs. Plus, Portugal's growing economic prospects, Nigeria's growing cinema industry, Nollywood, and much more. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Jessica Laudis, Managing Editor Laurel Jerombeck, Podcast Producer Isabel Vazquez. I'm David Alpern. Thank you.